It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hope you had a sensational weekend, but we're back in action. I'm happy to be here, and thanks for choosing us. Steve Hayes is going to be joining us and unwinding the chances of a deal in Washington, D.C. As you know, CEO of the Dispatch and co-founder as well as editor, so that'll be great. And we'll take your phone calls, 1-866-408-7669. Just let me remind you, if you ever have to miss the show through no fault of your own, if you can get the podcast, briankilmeadshow.com, you can get it wherever you get podcasts, foxnewspodcast.com, or iTunes or anything else. So hopefully you'll go ahead and uh, take advantage of that opportunity so you don't miss a day, because we ride the breaking news as well as bring it into perspective. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I want kids to know about Tulsa. I also want them to know what that black community did to overcome that horrible massacre. I want them to see the forward progress of America as well on these issues. I don't want this to be my weaponization of my identity against yours. Yeah, that's good. And she was fantastic. Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, making sense. She grew up in a segregated South, is not buying critical race theory. Her reasons why will get you thinking on all things race in America. Number two. You know, I still have all the confidence in the world, Chris, we're going to get there. My goodness, the president has gone from $2.25 trillion down to $1 trillion. The Republicans have come up uh, quite a bit from where they started, but I, we're not there yet. I think they're going to be talking again tomorrow. Uh, Joe Manchin, the single force stopping Dems from nationalizing elections, jamming a $2 trillion infrastructure package down our nation's throats and keeping the filibuster intact. Can he stand up to the sustained, intensifying left-wing pressure? I say yes, and I'll tell you why. Number one. I was told at that time, back in the spring, that Dr. Fauci had gone over to a meeting of world health leaders in Europe around the World Health Assembly and actually briefed them on the information that they were looking at, that this could have been a potential lab leak, that this strain looked unusual. So those discussions were going on. So with Dr. Scott Gottlieb, with great sources within Trump and within Biden administrations, found out about a meeting Anthony Fauci was at, at which time he said he questioned about the origin of the virus, but he never told us that. It all matters. The origins of the virus are suddenly getting national interest, and it matters. And Anthony Fauci, it's not Anthony Fauci against Trump. It's not anything like that. Anthony Fauci made his name not by reading and right because he wasn't. They said, well, they trusted him. He's got all this experience. They trusted him. They they liked his demeanor. They're my, you know, Brad Pitt salutes him. Uh, I guess played him, and he got a bobblehead doll, and he's on the cover of every magazine wearing sunglasses by a pool. I still don't get it, but I'll try to understand it. Part of it was he was saying everything he knew. Even if he wasn't right, he was being honest. I don't think you can say he's being honest anymore. First, he told us, don't wear a mask. And then when he said, you have to wear a mask, he said, I only told you not to wear a mask because you didn't have enough. Well, that's not true. Because it's not up to you to tell us we didn't have enough. Tell us what it needs to be. Because at the same time, the Surgeon General was telling us how to make a mask out of a bandana. I never bought that. So 
Here is what Dr. Scott Gleeb said. Gottlieb said he found out, he said on Face the Nation yesterday, about Anthony Fauci, who said this came from animals. He told us where the wet market. He got credited by the Wuhan virus representative, Peter Daszak, for putting down those rumors that this came from a lab leak. Cut five. I was told at that time, back in the spring, um, that Dr. Fauci had gone over to a meeting of world health leaders in Europe around the World Health Assembly and actually briefed them on the information that they were looking at, that this could have been a potential lab leak, that this strain looked unusual. So those discussions were going on, and I was told that by a very senior official in the Trump administration. I've reconfirmed that conversation. That happened you know, at the time contemporaneously with, uh, with that meeting over a year ago. Uh, so I think early on when they looked at the strain, they had suspicions. And in a closer analysis, and it takes time to do that analysis, dispelled some of those um, suspicions. So he had doubts, but he never told us that. Mark Zuckerberg is one of the many people on his tranches of emails that are now public thanks to freedom of information requests from BuzzFeed and other outlets. And I think more are coming. Judicial Watch is another. So if that information gets out, and he's talking to Mark Zuckerberg, is that related to the fact that people like Tom Cotton and others, maybe you, are speculating about the Wuhan virus being intentional or unintentional coming from the Chinese lab, and they didn't tell us the nature of this virus, how serious it was, and how it potentially uh, could be stopped? And because we didn't know the nature of the virus, we couldn't come up with a test? The CDC was prepared for the wrong virus. 600,000 Americans are now dead. I agree with President Trump on Saturday. China, you owe us about $10 trillion as well as personal anguish uh, for all those who've lost loved ones, whether it's related or correlated to what happened here in our country and around the world. We're doing better than almost any other country outside Israel right now because we had to come up with a vaccine better than yours. You're great at making the terrible viruses, China, and we're great at stopping them. But Condoleezza Rice says, listen, I don't get it. This is China's M.O. Cut 11. I think there were even those who said that President Trump's uh, early decisions about uh, border closures and travel restrictions uh, were uh, xenophobic or or not appropriate. Turns out they were incredibly appropriate. But uh, yes, maybe there was a little bit too much of trusting of the Chinese. I'm going to give people a break, too, during this time. When you're in the middle of one of these unfolding crises, you don't really know what's going on. Uh, But I would, uh, given what we experienced with SARS, and oh, by the way, with avian flu as well in the early 2000s, um, I don't think it was worth uh, trusting that the Chinese were being transparent about what was going on there. So why was everyone so determined to blame, to not blame the Chinese? And then if you bring that up, you're being xenophobic or you're perpetuating hate crimes in America. I don't know these psychos that are hitting Asian people because they're Asian and this coronavirus. You know what I call Chinese Americans? Americans. And that's what most Americans do. And if something was to happen with Italy in World War II and if something was to happen with Iranians, as we saw with the uh, hostage crisis in the 70s, sometimes, sadly, we take it out on on whatever the ethnic group is in our country. But that's not any one person's fault. It's frustration. It goes back to FDR rounding up the Japanese for internment. But that backed off all criticism on China, which they loved. And I'm sure they're pressing the levers uh, because they're so infiltrated and intertwined in our uh, public relations, our marketing, our science, our schools, our curriculum. I wouldn't doubt they're pushing the levers to make sure there wasn't additional pressure on them. 
But understand, if we don't pressure China, no one will. Australia tried. They were left alone and isolated. They had huge tariffs in the middle of a pandemic on their wine and other products that they exported uh, through the region. So they paid a price for that, and the statement they put out was very vanilla. So I ask you this. Keep in mind, this is not saying Anthony uh, Fauci against Donald Trump. This is, why is this guy so lauded? What exactly did he do? And why wasn't he telling us everything? We're all adults here. We're certainly paying the price. We should never be listening to scientists who tell us to shut down our economy. They should be one of the voices, but not the only voice. We'll talk about that. Next, I think a deal could get done on infrastructure. Why do I think that? Because Republicans realize that even though John Tester of Montana, even though Senator Sinema of Arizona, perhaps Angus King of Maine, are among the people pushing back on things like infrastructure and the Voting Writers Act and, to keep, and, and the Voter Rights Act and to keep the filibuster in place. For the most part, Joe Manchin's taking all the, all the slings and arrows. And why is he doing that? He said, I want to see legitimate, sincere negotiation. That's the way this thing should be. And you listen to speculators who know Joe Manchin well. He said he was mentored by Robert Byrd. Robert Byrd was all about that, not just about being Grand Wizard of the KKK. He was about making the Senate a deliberative body. And he says he's the only one that can keep that going, and he might be right, at least for two more years. And we'll see if Democrats can expand their advantage or lose the Senate entirely as they're going. See if America does have standards and can go see and beyond party. If you do not sincerely negotiate, Joe Manchin will have nothing to go on and lean on in these conversations. And he's confident that infrastructure will happen. Now, they say they're $700 billion apart. I don't, not my math. It looks like the Republicans are up to around a trillion. And it looks like Joe Biden is trapped around a trillion. How that money's spent and how it's paid for, that'll be key. But you can work things out. Cut 14. I commend uh, the uh, president and uh, Senator Capito, my colleague from West Virginia, for continuing to work hard. They're working hard trying to find a compromise. They've come a long way, and they're moving in the right direction. We need a bipartisan infrastructure bill. We most definitely need that. And infrastructure, something's been delayed for far too long by past administrations. So it's time for us to move forward. There's a lot that's been done with the COVID bills that we put out that basically overlap in some areas of infrastructure, but there's a lot more that needs to be done. And I think we can come to that compromise to where we'll find a bipartisan deal. I'm very, very confident of that. They're also working on a parallel path, so to speak, uh, with in a bicameral, bipartisan way. They got Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema, Rob Portman, uh, Josh Gottheimer of New Jersey, Brian Fitzpatrick. Uh, they all work on these so-called problem solvers people. They're working on another proposal that has $1.1 trillion over, the, over eight years. Uh, and the bipartisan group has $878 billion infrastructure proposals to be paid for over the next five to eight years. So there's things that can get done because there's so much of the infrastructure package they want done. Just forget about elder care and preschool payments and student loans and setting up uh, green zone militias to police people that they claim are polluting. So I just think that Mitch McConnell has to understand would he huge mistake with Barack Obama saying my number one goal is to make him a one-term president. That made everything Barack Obama said, every time you disagreed, you say, well, you, that's what Mitch McConnell's not going to go with it anyway. And then if you said that she, he said something similar about Joe Biden, walked it back the next day. But if they're going ahead and they're, they're doing legitimate negotiations, that marginalizes AOC. That marginalizes the entire squad. And that's better for the country. I don't care what's better for their party. 
It's actually better for their party, too. But it's better for the country. But uh, Joe Manchin's doing great work right now. He never votes against. So far, he has not voted against anything Joe Biden has put out. But he's also warning Senator Chuck Schumer, don't put this up for a vote. I'm not voting for it. And the Voters' Right Act it would change the way we vote in this country in such an extreme way. It's not even up for thought. Angus King says it's 900 pages. I haven't seen it. He's, I, he says there's problems with it that he sees. He's the independent out of Maine. Where is John Tester? He has a problem that he sees. But right now it looks like it's just Joe Manchin standing in the way. If Republicans can stand their ground on voting and then go negotiate on infrastructure, we might be able to survive these two years. What do you think? one 408 7669 You can write me at com. If you're at work now and at work and you can't really make the phone calls like you used to. Steve Hayes at the bottom of the hour. Keep it here. Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base. It's Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. I was born in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, I was eight before my family could go to a movie theater or to a restaurant. I didn't have a white classmate until we moved to Denver when I was 12. So, yes, I know America's uh, troubled past. And that troubled past continues to have an impact uh, going forward on how we see each other. When I hear the talk about structural racism, it really gives me pause. And it gives me pause because it doesn't tell me what to do. Yeah, so structural racism, what you do, yeah, America sucks, right? You'll go apologize. Go admit, you, go admit your white privilege and then move on. Really? Uh, you want to move on? I'll give you moving on. Here's Condoleezza Rice talking about her upbringing. You know, you don't need somebody to tell her about what it is like being black in America in segregated South. I mean, when she grew up, she witnessed it uh, up close and personal. And what she also knows is that this is the conversation I thought we'd be having. That's why I was so encouraged to hear her talking about it. So when you see some problems that remain in our country uh, with this whole uh, something that could co- good to come out of George Floyd, you thought there'd be conversations about moving forward. Instead, let's blame white people for everything's wrong and let's wreck their towns and their cities until we get our way. Or until cops quit. 
Here's a little more. Cut 26. Can we finally agree that our uh, K-12 education system is really serving poor kids and, and minority kids uh, very badly. Can we agree that uh, we actually have a choice system? Because if uh, you uh, are of means, you will move to a district where the schools are good. You will go, uh, and by the way, the houses will be expensive, so that's a choice. You can send your kids to private schools. So those are choices. So who really doesn't have choice? Poor kids. Which is, the Republicans addressed it with vouchers to get them to the schools that will let them to reach the potential, uh, whatever that potential is. So, okay, that school is failing. The teachers aren't getting paid enough. It's not supported by the city. They're moving on. And they're taking the vouchers, and they're moving on to another school. The money afforded them, on average, to go to a public school, they'll take it with them. That'll force these schools to be better right away. She goes on to talk more about the problems with this current conversation. Cut 27. I want kids to know about Tulsa. I also want them to know what that black community did to overcome that horrible massacre. I want them to know about 63 in Birmingham, but I want them to know that the mayor of Birmingham today is a black man who grew up in a poor community. So I want them to see the forward progress of America as well on these issues. And I want us as a country to do it together because uh, I don't want this to be black against white, my weaponization of my identity against yours. Exactly. I've said to myself, that's exactly the problem. So you have a problem. Society is unequal. Okay. What's structural racism? I'm not really sure what that means because I've never had any bias against you. And most people listening right now don't have bias, whether you're a minority listening, a female listening, a male listening. We don't feel the bias. But if there's some inequities in our system, let's work to fix it. Oh, it's my fault? Oh, it's my fault. I should apologize? I should give 80% of my money to somebody else, to another cause? I should put up with the destruction of my city, my town, my block. I should put up with the defunding of my police, really, because of something that happened 200 years ago that you can't see the great in this country, only that slavery existed. We fought a war to get rid of it in the 1960s to take the next step, and every year since has been progress. Now, all of a sudden, we're the bad guys if you're not a person of color in this country. Nothing's going to get done. Cut 28. Your point about structural racism is not that it doesn't exist, but that the term itself doesn't get you as far as you would like. Well, I just, John, I've, I've ceased to, to use it because I don't know what it means anymore. And I think it's become a barrier uh, to do. I think that there are impacts of race uh, that are clear in uh, American life. Absolutely. But in- Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Now, the other problem with it is it sounds so big and impenetrable as if we have to jettison the system somehow. And with all of its problems, having been all over the world and having seen how people deal with difference, I will tell you that America deals with difference better than any country I've ever visited. Don't you think you should take a word for it? She doesn't walk around as a, as a blind conservative, whatever, the, whatever Ronald Reagan said it goes. You know, she went up, she was, she's cognizant of the obstacles that exist and overcame them. She went to the highest echelons of government. 
some of the people that meant the most to her are guys like Brent Scowcroft. And if the headshots, I never met him in person, are correct, and the video I saw is correct, I believe he's white. So I think that if you go on and on and talk about what's happening with race in America— you got to point out that uh, LBJ is the one who put together the civil rights group, the abolitionists, the ones that worked in the North, but most importantly, the ones that worked through the South to help moving our country further. We were on the same page for a long time, marching in the same direction a long time, but now we're going at each other, and someone's made a huge mistake. And I think it's time for people like Condoleezza Rice to correct it. Only she can. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. You know, I still have all the confidence in the world, Chris, we're going to get there. My goodness, the president has gone from $2.25 trillion down to $1 trillion dollars. The Republicans have come up uh, quite a bit from where they started. This is the same type of uh, challenges we had back last year when we had to all get together and break a deadlock. But we're not there yet. I think they're going to be talking again tomorrow. We'll wait. We'll talk to Senator Capito after those meetings. We'll talk to the White House. And we think we can find a pathway forward. We're not that far apart. Do you believe that? Because evidently Joe Manchin's in a very small number of people that uh, thinks they're going to get something done. And as we pointed out by Rahm Emanuel over the summer, uh, excuse me, uh, on Sunday, that it took 12 months really to pass Obamacare, and they had 60 senators for the most part, uh, 59, then 60. Uh, joining us now is Steve Hayes, Fox News contributor, editor, and CEO of The Dispatch. Steve, welcome back. Hey, Brian. How are you? So good, Steve. I'm just your perspective. I know conventional wisdom is they're not going to get anything done. I actually feel more optimistic, but you're in Washington. You know Joe Manchin uh, better than most. Do you believe it's false optimism? No, look, I think Joe Manchin is saying what he's saying for a reason. You know, one thing we know about Joe Manchin these days is he's involved in virtually every important conversation that takes place in Washington as it relates to advancing Joe Biden's agenda. So I think Joe Manchin says that he thinks something can get done, something can get done. And, of course, we know that as a backstop, the Biden White House has the opportunity to push some of this stuff through uh, via reconciliation if they want to. So they can continue to pursue these talks with Republicans and have and try to forge some bipartisan compromise. We've seen some give on both sides. I would say not quite as much as Joe Manchin would have us believe in that uh, soundbite you just played there. But again, if, if, if it doesn't work with Republicans, they can look to forcing stuff through with, with Democrats. How many would they have, though? I mean, if you don't have Manchin, you don't have Manchin, and the word is you might not have Tester and or Cinema. They have they have questions from uh, those folks publicly. There are other reservations that some Democrats have. On the other hand, I think you could find some moderate Republicans who basically have have been saying, you know, going back to the the Trump administration, we need infrastructure. We need to pass these things. We need, we need to to rebuild our our roads. We need to rebuild our bridges. It's important for the country. Uh, we've got to have it. And, you know, I think if you get enough, a small handful of Republicans who are comfortable making that argument, even if they don't like some of the, the stuff that the Biden White House has larded on, you could, when it actually comes time to a vote, you could see a few of them join Democrats. So I was looking at Kat. I mean, I just want to see the sincerity. It's been a long time since we saw sincere negotiations. So maybe I'm, see, I'm searching too hard. 
But I saw Senator Cassidy come out and say, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to – they have this, all this green stuff larded into this, using your word. So he said, we do some things that they're, hope, they're, they're hoping we would do. For example, we're capping methane, uh, capping gold gas, uh, uh, old gas uh, uh, holes, abandoning oil and gas wells, helps decrease the methane. We're also going to fund their Superfund cleanup. Not quite the traditional definition of infrastructure, but this is a negotiation. When I see guys like uh, Cassidy, Mitt Romney, uh, Cinema, Collins, Portman, people that if you're going to do a deal, these are the people that Mitt Romney, you know, uh, people are those are the people you're going to do a deal with. They're actually working on a parallel path on something else. Right. So when you're around a trillion and the other one's around two trillion, and, you, and now you're meeting around one trillion. And now Democrats are getting upset that they're even cutting this deal to begin with. I think Republicans have to realize they're going to put too much pressure on Manchin. He's going to break unless they deliver some type of negotiation to back up his hypothesis. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, on the other hand, you have to think about this. I think you have to think about these negotiations in the broader context of the Biden agenda, right? I mean, this is just another piece of what Joe Biden is pushing and the, the 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 hugeness of it all is something that has to give Republicans pause. I mean, look at the American jobs plan, the American families plan, you're talking about $2 trillion each and either of those in, in addition to what we've already seen, in addition to, to broader infrastructure packing. I mean, these are... You know, those are things that are borrowing from the White House's overall agenda. And you get Republicans who look at these proposals and say, this is just all too much. And I think you you layer on top of that the the negotiations that we saw early on the COVID relief, the so-called COVID relief. Which went nowhere. Which which went nowhere. Republicans really do think that they were – that they weren't listened to. I mean, and, and, you know, Brian, we've talked about it here before. It was really the case that as Republicans were taking their counter proposal to, so, to, to, I think they thought, start negotiations, you had Jen Psaki at the White House podium saying, in effect, now nah, there's, no, there's no discussion about going smaller on this COVID relief package. The only discussion is about going bigger. So, you know, at a certain point, if, if you're a Republican and you believe even sort of vaguely in limiting government, this, these, these kinds of negotiations are where you have to, to sort of stick your, your flag in the ground and say, this is a lot. This is too much. Well, then you got a budget there that, to back up your point further. He submitted a budget that said $6 trillion and, and projects 1.9% growth. Oh, congratulations. You're giving me a loser. You're telling right. me this is a loser. It's not going to work out for the country. It's going to redistribute less wealth to other people. Yeah, I mean, we know that those budgets are just – they're much better seen as a statement of presidential yeah. priorities than they are an actual blueprint for how, how our, our budgeting is going to work because it will all start with Congress. It will originate in Congress, and that's, that's who will drive the budgeting process. But just as a statement of presidential priorities, that budget is pretty alarming. And you also have to take into account the fact that we're $28 trillion in debt. And while I don't think Republicans have much credibility on the debt issue – these days, it still matters. Like you still, you still have to make the argument because at some point, you, the, the the argument, the political argument is, well, people don't really care about debt deficits anymore. They don't care about. At some point, everybody's going to, because at some point, this is all going to be too much, and then we will see a serious debt crisis, uh, some kind of collapse. You know, it's coming. It's coming. 
The other big issue is voting rights. And I would argue that that's even bigger because it will nationalize elections. I mean, the things that this will do will transform how we vote. Allows voters, this is among the many things, it's 900 pages, but allows voters to substitute a photo ID with a sworn written statement, expands mail-in voting, restores voting rights for convicted felons, encourages statehood for Washington, D.C., um, um, and implements automatic voter nationwide registration. So Joe Manchin said this about that, cut 22. I think there's a lot of great things. I agree in that piece of legislation, but there's an awful lot of things that basically don't pertain directly to voting. I think it's the wrong piece of legislation to bring our country together and unite our country, and I'm not supporting that because I think it will divide us further. I don't want to be in a country that's divided any further than I'm in right now. I love my country, and I think my Democrat and Republican colleagues feel the same. If we continue to divide it and separate us more, it's not going to be united, and it's not going to be the country that we love and know, and it's going to be hard because it'll be back and forth no matter who's in power. And that's why I've been protecting... So that brings... The process. And, and that the, the pushback from Democrats is, well, all these Republican legislatures are restricting voting. We just want to restore it. That's the political line. But he seemed he wrote an editorial about that. That was his uh, that was his flag in the ground. Don't you think, Steve? Yeah, it was a very interesting answer that you played there. Uh, and, and Chris pressed him on that. You know, he seems to be making two arguments at the same time. One, he has some substantive problems with the legislation as presented. Two, he wants it to be bipartisan, and he doesn't want something that's going to be this divisive. He seems – Manchin seems to be leaning far more into the second of those two arguments, I think probably because it's easier for him with his Democratic colleagues and, and some Democratic sympathies on the substance of the case. Manchin is saying, look, this has to be bipartisan. Yeah, he's getting a ton of grief from fellow Democrats about that who say, look, either this is good legislation or it's not good legislation. If you don't think it's good legislation, propose some changes, make some tweaks, and help us pass the thing. Don't just side with Republicans. Look, there, there are real problems with the, the legislation that's presented. It, it doesn't seem like – it's certainly if you talk to Republicans on the Capitol Hill, this is their sentiment. This was legislation that was meant to pass. This was legislation that was meant to make a point. And to, to try to frame Republicans as tools of Donald Trump who simply want to stop people who aren't going to vote Republican from voting Republican. Now, I will say I'm old enough and, and have been doing this long enough to be this cynical. I think there's part of that in there. I, th- I think part of the arguments that Republicans are making, part of what you're seeing in state legislatures around the country, is a, a, a more aggressive effort to keep non-Republicans from voting. And I think that sucks. Honestly, Republicans should be strong enough and believe in their issues enough to make arguments to persuade voters and bring them over to the Republican side. So it's not a good idea to to cut that short. Having said that, I mean, just listening to some of the things that you're citing, some of these things aren't that controversial. And and I think Democrats are in a boy who cried wolf problem here because they've been making these kinds of claims about simple and I think common sense rules like voter ID. You know, voter ID is, is not necessarily the kind of thing that is meant to keep everybody from voting. Steve, I, I saw a couple of polls that said rule. 70% of the public think that you should have an ID to vote. Yes, absolutely. Right. And the workarounds that are proposed in the legislation that have been kicked around by Democrats for years are, are they're, they're not, they do nothing to advance election security. I mean, you know, the process in Wisconsin, which is my home state where I grew up, you basically just had to give, give an, an address and say, yeah, that's me. There's, nothing, there's no way of checking. They didn't even really try to check. 
And that's not a system that will – I think it's very important that we have confidence in our elections. That kind of a loose system that can be easily taken advantage of is not a way to do that. Understood. So further to define and maybe push back for the Democratic perspective, so-called independent, uh, Senator Angus King, cut 24. I think there are things that can be modified, and uh, Chuck Schumer knows that, and, and Amy Klobuchar, I've, I've said that all along. I, it's a it's a 800 or 900 or 1,000 page bill. It, there, there are clearly some things I think need to be negotiated, and I think uh, Joe Manchin realizes that. The, but the guts of it, uh, Jake, is is voting rights. It has a lot of other pieces. It has, for example, it has public financing of elections. It has a lot of other pieces in it. But the, the, the important part for me is protecting voting rights. And, and I think that, you know, that's becoming more urgent by the day based upon what's going on around in the states. So would he, then he went on to point out something else. He said that there's a, there's a push now in some states to have a legislature not verify the vote. So if Pennsylvania's legislature doesn't like the outcome of a vote, if it's Democrat or Republican, they could overturn it and name their own delegates. I don't want that either. And if, no, if, there's, right. if there's a Republican push for that, I haven't read that, but Angus King says it's there. I'm not for that. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't be either. I mean, look, part of the problem is, first of all, just to clarify, what he said there, it, it's not a 900,000-page bill. It's a 900-or-1,000-page bill. Uh, but he's right. I mean, there's all sorts of extraneous things in there that, as I was pointing out just a moment ago, you wouldn't have in there if you were truly – if this were truly about passing legislation. And you know, I don't think they're likely to get many Republican votes anyway, but you're sure not going to get Republican votes if you lard the thing up with all sorts of extraneous issues, some that are only tangentially related to voting. And then in the, in the, the parts that you are including about actual voting, about what this thing is supposed to be about, you include a bunch of provisions Republicans have been on record as opposing. It's not the way to do it if you want to find compromise and you want to have this debate. So, all right, Steve. So on these two things, we know that the Senator Schumer wanted to put up the Voting Rights Act, whatever they want to call it, something stupid, um, this week. Does he do it, number one? And number two, do you think infrastructure has a path to passage? I don't think Schumer does it unless he's sure that there is a chance that he's going to that he's going to come up with the votes. I mean, maybe, you know, because this is more a performative piece of legislation, I suppose you could say it would be in his interest to put it up, to have a big bloody fight about it, to have Republicans kill it. And then Democrats have the issue and they can wave it around and say, so it's possible he would do that. I would also think that Schumer wouldn't want to be embarrassed. So, I would, you know, Democrats are going to need to to sort of circle around. And if there are ways that Schumer can push negotiators to 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 take some compromise to increase the number of votes, I would think he might do that on infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think there's a path I wouldn't be I, I'm not in favor of the, the plans that they're being discussed right now. This is all way too much money for me. So when I say I'm I'm not optimistic. I mean, I'm, I am optimistic that it that it, we won't end up with something huge because I don't want us to have something huge. But I think there is a path to passing something because, in the broadest sense, you have both Republicans and Democrats who have who who, who say today that they're in favor of infrastructure, who have argued you know, argued during the Trump administration that they were in favor of infrastructure. So if you present something that actually looks and feels like infrastructure, I think you could get something. Right. I mean, when you have infrastructure and it includes elder care and pre-K, uh, 
please. Yeah. Come on. Don't insult yeah. us. Uh, Steve, thanks so much. Congratulations on the success of the dispatch. Keep it going. All right, Brian. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. You got it. one 408 7669. We end with your calls. Brian Kilmeade Show, Monday. Don't move. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. I have never seen that before. That makes two of us. Derek Mollica, the home plate umpire. The ball ends up in his pocket. I know many baseball rules. I know many baseball rules, Greg Olson, but I am going to plead ignorance here. The ball ends up in the umpire's shirt pocket, and he was going to give Drew Swift and Hunter Jump a pace. Did you see that? No, I didn't see that. I mean, it's an incredible video. Just so, go ahead. Oh no, sorry. It was a college baseball game, Arizona State versus Fairfield. It was a wild pitch, and sort of goes off the catcher's glove and then falls into the umpire's shirt pocket. No one could find where the ball went. It was in his pocket, but they deemed it as a wild pitch. So there were runners on second and third, and they each got a base. Just got one base. But then, but then they they got the uh, go ahead run. But was it the shirt pocket? His shirt pocket. So you should know what I'm sure there's going to be a new thing, almost like the shoe bomber. We have to take our shoes off before Got to check going to the TSA. No more pocket, right? Well, for the umpire. But don't umpires, like, don't they put their counter in their pocket sometimes? But not the front. Oh, not yeah, the front not anymore. One? What is know. the rules? Don't argue on their behalf. Don't argue. I, I will done. not. But I will say go check out the video. It's pretty incredible. But I felt the call still worked for our radio listeners. That, absolutely. You're 100% right. It's pretty bad when you know more sports than I do about even something as extraneous as that. It happens I, about once a year. You got it. Eric, listen on WDBO in Orlando. Hey, Eric. Hey, Brian. Um, I just wanted to chime in about the Fauci uh the Chinese virus, I'm going to call it the Chinese virus. I think, I think they're right. They owe us $10 trillion. Uh, Fauci went and said last week that the Chinese wouldn't intentionally go and work on something that would harm them. <laughs> well, they, they didn't intentionally release it. It was definitely a big oops. And how do we know that they knew how bad this was? They stopped their own people from traveling out of Wuhan. They went door to door pretty much dragging people, their own citizens, out of their homes and their workplaces and locking them up in quarantine. Um, so we know that they know this was big. I want to know, I want to know Fauci's involvement. And I want to, this goes bigger. And the problem is, like Hillary's emails got deleted, and, but they're found, and we know what Fauci's emails were. These people use private phones and private emails, yeah. too, and I'm sure, I'm sure that Barack Obama's running this country still, because there's no way Biden's making all these decisions. It's well, true. Now he's going to be on his own with Vladimir Putin, which should scare everybody in America. Uh, thanks so much, Eric. You're always a great caller, great insight. Everything he said was 100% correct. Brian Kilmeade. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. 
Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. We're going to talk to Mary, uh, Mary Anastasio O'Grady. And she is with the Wall Street Journal. If anyone knows about the immigration problem, the struggles of Venezuela, as well as Central America, and the issues within those countries, it is her as the vice president of the United States heads for her first road trip to Guatemala, then Mexico, in an attempt to solve an unprecedented crisis at our border by not going to the border. And Michael Goodwin is standing by. He has a great column this week. Uh, it came out yesterday. Just talking about what is at stake with the creator of the 1619 Project not getting tenure in North Carolina and why it's so important she does not. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I want kids to know about Tulsa. I also want them to know what that black community did to overcome that horrible massacre. I want them to see the forward progress of America as well on these issues. I don't want this to be my weaponization of my identity against yours. So important, making sense. Condi Rice, who grew up in segregated South, not buying the critical race theory. Her reasons why will get you thinking on all things race in America. Number two. You know, I still have all the confidence in the world, Chris, we're going to get there. My goodness, the president has gone from $2.25 trillion down to $1 trillion. The Republicans have come up uh, quite a bit from where they started, but I, we're not there yet. I think they're going to be talking again tomorrow. Unbelievable. Senator Joe Manchin, the single force stopping Dems from nationalizing elections, jamming $2 trillion infrastructure down our throats and getting rid of the filibuster. Can he stand up, though, to the sustained intensifying left-wing pressure? I say yes. I'll tell you why. Number one. I was told at that time, back in the spring, that Dr. Fauci had gone over to a meeting of world health leaders in Europe around the World Health Assembly and actually briefed them on the information that they were looking at, that this could have been a potential lab leak, that this strain looked unusual. So those discussions were going on. Really? Would have been nice if you told us that you were that worried about it. I thought uh, Dr. Fauci might have been wrong, but he's always honest and candid. I never bought that, but America did. Now it shouldn't. This all matters. The origin of the China virus suddenly getting national attention. And let's bring in Michael Goodwin. Michael, uh, the New York Post, Fox News contributor. Michael, welcome back. What do you think about that revelation? It's pretty extraordinary. Um, Brian, the, the, the more you look at Fauci and the more you compare sort of the Fauci over over the last year and a half or so, and you see all of these different things, and you come away asking yourself, well, what does he really believe? Um, and I think that is, that's the death of credibility for anybody in public life. Uh, you know, uh, among our politicians, we talk about authenticity and things like that. I mean, that's shorthand for, for trust, that we trust that what you are saying is what you believe, that that's who you are. Especially Fauci's Not, case. Well, that's right. And so when, when you have a scientist uh, who is acting more like a politician, a, a bad politician, in the sense of saying different things at different times. Uh, is it casual? Is it laziness? Is it trying to please his interviewers? That's what it strikes me, that he, he more and more seems to have told the media who's ever asking what they want to hear. And so he's more a reflection of, of the interviewers than he is of his own feelings and beliefs. And so in science, I mean, in politics, that's bad enough. But in silence, science, it's death. Yes. And then I saw Steve Hilton last night, and he got this clip about 
uh, Anthony Fauci. Just let me remind you, when asked about uh, chain uh, uh, chain of uh, gain-of-function research, this is what he said, cut to. The NIH and NIAID categorically has not funded gain-of-function research to be conducted in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And you remember that sprawl famously. So here's what he said. They found this from 2012, cut one. If you look at basic research as we've approached it, integral to that study has always been the issue of gain-of-function research. There are a few ways to look at gain-of-function research. There's the naturally occurring mutations which naturally give gain-of-function, and investigators study these effects on the phenotypes of interest. Does this mutation make something more transmissible, more pathogenic, or adapt to host better? Or what historically investigators have done is to actually create gain of function by making mutations, passage adaptation, or other newer genetic techniques such as reverse genetics and genetic reassortment. Okay. Uh, does that sound like a guy against chain of uh, uh, function research? No, Gain it doesn't. Of and, and, and that's another example, Brian, of how he says one, one thing one time with complete certainty, and then at some later period will say exactly the opposite with complete certainty. Uh, none of this is science. N- none of this is scientif- scientific in the way that I was raised to see science as something that's always challenging. He never seems to be challenging. He always seems to be 100% accepting of a point of view. And that, to me, is the fundamental issue. And then, of course, you get to the, the big differences here, whether it was in a lab or whether it was uh, uh, naturally Occurring. But, you know, I have to say, too, Brian, that the, the vehemence with which Fauci and others have protected against the lab leak theory, uh, it, it makes you wonder, particularly the way the Chinese are reacting to the rise of this theory, it makes you wonder what's so bad about an accident. And then you start to say, well, maybe if it came from a lab, it wasn't an accident. I mean, each door we open seems to lead to another door here, and that is the proper way science works. It's also the proper way journalism is supposed to work. So I want to bring you to your column, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, 1619 Project, gets all types of awards for getting it. People act like it's gospel. Upon further review, there are so many holes in it and so damaging to our country, it goes beyond description. It, ma- it makes everybody reframe what our country's about. Did we fight a revolutionary war to continue slavery? Was Britain trying to take slavery away from us? Is that where for the war? Of course not. You know, there's so much fundamentally wrong with it, but it's now installed as a curriculum in many schools across the country. And I believe that's the fundamental goal of the Biden administration. So North University of North Carolina hires Nicole Hannah-Jones, the author, and was about to give her tenure. And then one of the biggest donors come forward and said, not really. If you want me to give you this money, I'm telling you, don't give her to don't give her tenure. You created a dialogue with this man, Mr. Hussman. Tell me about this story. Well, Brian, you know, as I say in the the column, normally this wouldn't matter in a national sense. But because it's Nicole Hannah-Jones and because the the opposition basically formed around Walter Hussman, he's the 
CEO of a company that owns a string of newspapers, magazines, and uh, TV stations in the South and the Midwest, and he's the publisher of the uh, Arkansas Democrat Gazette. he he's donated twenty five million dollars to the UNC School of Journalism. It now carries his name, and he has a code of core values. Uh, Hussman does that he publishes in his eleven papers every day. On page two of every paper every day, this code of core values. It's about two hundred and forty words, and it stresses impartiality and fairness and fact over opinion. And his argument is that uh, the University of North Carolina, when it took its 20, his $25 million gift, it said it would not only abide by, by that code, it would chisel it into the wall of its entry. And his argument now is that Nicole Hannah-Jones clearly does not believe in those values, does not abide by that code of standards, and therefore he is afraid that by giving her tenure, the uh, North Carolina School of Journalism, now called the Hussman School of Journalism, uh, will be overshadowed. The, the, the values will be overshadowed by the controversy he's of right. the 1619 prize. And he's absolutely right. And I think it, it is a fight worth having. And I really congratulate him for having this fight. So she's got a five-year deal, about $180,000 a year. But now she wants to fight and get tenure. And now people will be looking and seeing this a, a racial cause. Where's this story going? Well, uh, the, the Board of Trustees has final say on tenure. Hussman himself is not on the trustees. He, he has not even lobbied the trustees. He has written a series of emails he sent to the dean of the school, to two officials of the university at large, and to one member of the Board of Trustees. But it's the trustees themselves that will make this final decision. And as you can imagine, they are getting all kinds of pressure. Uh, other foundations have weighed in. The, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, they're all making Nicole Hannah-Jones to be a martyr. Uh, as you correctly said, the essay that won her the Pulitzer Prize is so flawed, so in error in numerous ways, and so nasty. Uh, I mean, she, she sounds like a black supremacist in certain parts of it. Uh, and I mean, she criticizes Asian Americans. She criticizes the greatest generation. I mean, I mean, she she neglects to mention any white help throughout uh, the entire 250 years uh, of of uh, the, this republic. I mean, it's as she says, blacks basically fought alone for their own equality. As Hussman says, what about the Civil War? What about Abraham Lincoln? What about the abolitionists? What about the freedom riders? Uh, I mean, just on and on and on, the errors and mistakes and, and overreach of her essay. And yet it is about, it is about identity politics at heart. It is about systemic racism in America and identity politics as the and, answer. And the New York Times and is to, right. And the New York Times, you point out, just to make this full circle, is a group that you wrote a column about, the Salzburgers and the people they bought it from. Uh, you pointed out they were supporting Jim Crow. They were supporting slavery. Yes, yes, they were. They were. They had relatives in the Confederate Army. Uh, they, they, one of the the found the founded the patriarch of the New York Times, his wife. Uh, I'm sorry, his mother was buried in a Confederate flag. 
he himself contributed in her name to the Georgia Stone Mountain Confederate Memorial, which the New York Times, never mentioning him, dismisses as a racist symbol. It, it, is, it has dismissed Mount Rushmore as, as covered in, as dec, uh, uh, decorated by racists. I mean, this is the New York Times, Brian, that has changed, made everybody else a racist, but itself, it won't look at its own history, and, and therefore it has a holier-than-now approach to the rest of the country. This is what's wrong with the New York Times. This is what's wrong with 1619. This is what's wrong with Nicole Hannah-Jones at the University of North Carolina. It's a Borden column. He noticed you. Uh, He noted your column. He asked to reprint it in his newspaper. I I assume you said yes. Yes, absolutely. And that's created this dialogue. It seems like respect on all ends. It's an important conversation and an important column. Well, thank you, Brian. And uh, I want to give Mr. Hussman, Walter Hussman, a lot of credit because he printed that column about the New York Times and its Confederates, as, as I call them, Confederates in the Attic. Uh, he printed that in the Chattanooga Times, which the New York Times family owned and which he now owns, and which was the really the birthplace of the Oak Salzburger newspaper empire. And so he has the courage of his convictions, and I, I give him great credit for that. There aren't many people on his side in this battle. So all the help he can get, I'm sure he appreciates. Absolutely. Uh, That that column is now a curriculum. Uh, Michael Goodwin, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Brian. All right. Uh, When we come back, I'll take your phone calls, 1-866-408-7669. And then you want to find out what uh, the chances success, what does success look like for Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris, as she lands in Guatemala last night? We'll talk to Mary Anastasia O'Grady, of the Wall Street Journal, who knows this region, writes a column uh, called The Americas, a weekly column, and knows this region as well as anyone in America. Back in a moment. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. This was a novel coronavirus. The word novel means we've never seen it before. So, of course, Tony Fauci, who has spent decades, literally decades, in the service of his country, he didn't get everything right. Nobody got everything right. There was a little bit of confusion about the value of masks. We thought originally that maybe this thing spread by touching. Now we know we don't. So, of course, there's confusion. But to use Tony Fauci, who has decades of service to this country and has saved uncounted lives as a political tool to beat up on Democrats, frankly, is shameful. I don't see it that way. That's Congressman Jim Himes, a Democrat from Connecticut, says it's shameful. Shameful for what? We're just trying to find out why you dismissed the fact that it came from a lab right away, why you didn't think it was important enough to press on them and say, listen, I don't do politics, but this country has a has a as a pattern of not telling us the truth about viruses they spawn out to the world. And the reason we can't get the right test is because they didn't tell us how it happened. There's a chance it went from animal to animal, and there's a chance it went from a lab leak. I don't know the difference. I can't do that. It's the CIA, FBI, and the president of the United States has got to tell me that. That's called being honest. Instead of, how dare you push back on a leak investigation, stop with these fringe theories. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, you're telling people the chances of a lab leak are indeed possible and worth investigating, but not publicly. That's deceptive. That's not Trump. 
Nothing to do with Trump. In the big picture, when you write the story, I don't think this guy should be walking on water. And the reason why the CDC was not ready is because they were told it was a different virus. And how are you supposed to stop the next one if you don't know how this happened? They're going to keep eating bats. And it started from a wet market. There's a problem, wouldn't you think? Stop with the exotic, um, uh, you know, the exotic, the exotic animal omelets, and maybe we might survive as a country, especially when you cover things up and don't tell us the truth. That is a problem, I thought. But a lot of people see politics, including a guy I hope never to hear from again, but I got to share his words with you. Cut three, Adam Schiff. This is, you know, part of the attack on truth by the Trump administration and Trump's GOP. Uh, science is really quintessentially about a, a search for the truth. Uh, all of the the mixed messaging on wearing masks, uh, all of the dysfunction around uh, producing the tests and rolling out the tests. Look, Fauci is speaking out about that, about the mistakes we so, made. So what he just what he just said is the problem I have and you have with Anthony Fauci. He didn't. He said to John Casamitidis famously in February, "It will not. The virus will not be a problem here." He told us in multiple interviews, including one with CBS that stands out, masks don't help. That's not Donald Trump. It is Anthony Fauci. You continue. Costly they were. So no wonder they're going after Fauci. Part of it is trying to resurrect Donald Trump, trying to help Mm. uh, a campaign uh, in 2024 uh, and whitewash his record. And they wish to try to rewrite this portion of history because... Uh, hundreds of thousands of people died under Trump's uh, incompetent watch. Okay. What do you say the rest of the world? Same thing? And is it his incompetence that's allowing the vaccine to spread throughout the country to the point where our cases are the lowest per capita in the world? Is that incompetence? If you actually wanted to solve a problem, Adam Schiff, instead of making up facts to try to sell your progressive agenda— and your ridiculous future that is so good that even Nancy Pelosi doesn't want you out front anymore. You can you actually laud the vaccine, and you may not like the hydroxychloroquine. But no, you don't see the problems. And even Democrat, even the president Biden sees the problem. Soon he'll be sidelined. Mark my words. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. She doesn't hold back, which is good. Yes. She's frank. No estamos... We're not on the same side of the coin. We are in agreement in the what, which is something. We're not in agreement in the how. Yamate told us targeting human traffickers should be a top American priority. We asked her to introduce a bill in the U.S. Senate which would declare the coyotes federal criminals. So you'd like coyotes to be prosecuted in the United States under federal law? Yes. That's correct. And we asked the U.S. to broaden our extradition treaty. 
Uh, there you go. That was the president of Guatemala in anticipation of the meeting with the vice president, uh, Harris. Uh, that was on CBS. Says where you heard what he said, and now let's see if they'll get anything done. But keep in mind, there's over 100 countries have crossed our border, have representatives have crossed our border. Not just Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, Venezuela is huge now, uh, as well as Mexico. And he's only, she is only going, the vice president, after 90 days, only going to visit Guatemala and Mexico in person. Unexcusable, unacceptable. What could possibly get done? Let's talk to Wall Street Journal's own uh, Mary Anastasia O'Grady, who writes the America's weekly column on politics, economics, and business in Latin America and Canada. It appears every Monday. Mary, welcome back. Hi, Brian. Good morning. How are you? Good, good. So <laughs> what, do you th- what do you think the vice president will get done today, tomorrow, or in the next few weeks after meeting in Guata- with the Guatemalan <laughs> president? Well, as I said in my column, I think this is mostly optics. Um, You know, she's been criticized for not going down there since she was named as sort of the point person on the administration to uh, deal with the highest point person to deal with with the um, migration issue. And she's been talking for some time about the root causes. So there are these, you know, immediate issues at the border. How do you basically police uh, and and process these people who are trying to get in, uh, either sneaking in or claiming asylum or what have you. Um, and then why are is are there such large waves of humanity moving north to the border? And so that's the root causes issue. Um, I mean, I'll give her credit for uh, acknowledging that some of you know a big part of this has to do with investment in the region. And because investment creates jobs and jobs create opportunity. And most of the people who come north, I mean, they're really uh, they would really rather stay home if they could. But they they want to earn a living and they want to earn in dollars and send those dollars home. And many of them, I mean, I've talked to a lot of migrants who say that if they could just get in for three or four or five years, they would build a piggy bank, and they would go back and open a business. I've talked to a number of people in Honduras who have that view. So she's rightfully saying that she needs to, we, you know, that the region needs to attract investment. The problem, and what I would say is a very deep problem for the Biden administration, is that while she's saying that out of one side of her mouth, um, the political agenda that she supports and the Democrats support in Central America is a very socialist agenda. And it doesn't respect the rule of law or property rights. And investors, I mean, serious numbers of investors, which is what you need because economies grow from the ground up, those investors are not going to go there when uh, property rights are so uncertain. And when the U.S. administration themselves are backing, you know, the political side of the aisle that doesn't respect property rights, it's, it's contradictory. So uh, the administration has a $4 billion long-term investment to Central America and so far pledged $310 million in investment for the region. Well, uh, we have to be convinced that that money is well spent and it's going to be put in the right places. Do we have apparatus to, to police this money? Well, first of all, let me say that that word investment is uh, highly charged. I mean, when I was talking about investment in my just now, I was talking about private sector companies that want to go there, make an investment because they think they can make a profit. 
And by making the investment, they hire people. What the administration is talking about when it says investment is basically uh, sending money to the region. And you're right, there's a very low probability that that will actually accomplish anything. Foreign aid itself has a very bad track record uh, because foreign aid, you know, $4 billion is a lot of money, but it's not enough to change the problem on the ground that these countries have. And I would add that she says, well, we know the countries, the governments tend to be very corrupt. Uh, so we're going to give money to NGOs. Well, you know, the NGO movement in the region is very left-wing. They're, they're basically anti-development. I mean, I can't, I don't want to speak with too much of a broad brush. I'm sure there are some good NGOs. But on balance, you know, giving money to community groups yeah. and to NGOs is not really very inspiring. So, so uh, Mary, though the word is he's a migration president. Those are the words of the Mexican president. They came across with Biden T-shirts. A lot of this is they know if you're a kid, a minor, unaccompanied, you get to stay. How, how is that message received? Well, yeah, I mean, you make a good point because back in March, um, uh, okay, now we're switching over to Mexico. I had been speaking about Guatemala and Central America. Well, do you don't think in, they're also getting the, that message from Guatemala and Mexico? Uh, that you don't think they're right? No, no, no. I I agree with you on that. And in fact, the Mexican president said back in March uh, that what's going on here is that um, there was a perception on the part of migrants that this administration would be much more welcoming of migrants. And when so when the administration change may, changeover came, you know, they started moving. And in fact, um, the Biden administration has been more welcoming. One of the things the Trump administration did was put in place this thing called uh, Remain in Mexico. Uh, they called it the migrant protocol, um, migrant protocol. And anybody who came and asked for entry into the country, they had to wait in Mexico, those yeah. kind of camps, which weren't very um, uh, welcome. They weren't very comfortable. You wouldn't want to live in one. So that was a deterrent. And um, in February, uh, the Biden administration started taking people out of those camps and processing them. And then just last week, Alejandro Mayorkas said there's going to be no more remain in Mexico. So, again, that's messaging migrants that if you come to the border, um, what will happen is, I mean, they say they're turning people away, but they're not turning children away um, and they're not turning away. Um, you know, there are some number of, of migrants they're not turning away and those people get in and then get assigned a hearing later on. I should just say for the record, which you may disagree with me, but I'm not that troubled by children, um, you know, being brought because a lot of most of them are re reuniting with parents or going to live with guardians or aunts or uncles or what have you. Um, we don't make children here anymore, so we need to import them. Yeah, well, we got to do it the right um, way. Little, you can't just show. That's a little bit of a joke. I, I know. Yeah, I know, I know I what know, you're saying, Mary. I the know. population's <laughs> down, but the whole thing yeah. is the danger these kids get to the get there. It's the yeah, wrong no, message. I agree with that. And also the other problem is is the volume. I mean, they can't process them. But but that goes to another point, which is that the real solution here, beyond investment, okay, investment's one solution, but a, another solution would be to get the embassies and the consulates in these countries to start doing their job in terms of processing visas and sending a message that if you show up at the border – 
you're, not only are you not going to get in, but you're not going to get a visa. You, if you want to get a visa, go to the consulate or the embassy. And But exactly. the embassies have to do their job. They have to have been manned and so forth. I mean, right now in Guatemala, uh, I am hearing, I asked the State Department, they didn't give me a number, but I'm hearing from people that there's like a year or two-year waiting list for businessmen, Guatemalan businessmen who come, you know, they sell um, fruits and vegetables and, you know, we yeah. import uh, agriculture from Guatemala. There is a one to two year waiting list to renew the 10 year visas. I mean, these people who just do business in this country legally cannot get visas. So this is where this is a key place where the system and, and you're right. I mean, for the children, it would be much better if you could go to the consulate and say, yes, this child's parents are living in San Jose you know, we or uh, you know, somewhere in California or New York, and and he, we want to reunite him and do it legally. That's the problem with this sort of bum rush of the border. I'm very pro-immigrant, but I think this is absolutely untenable, and it actually weakens the support for immigration in this country. So, you know, they're 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 sort of shooting themselves in the foot if they want to have a positive, uh, welcoming immigration policy. They should that talk is to you. Supported by the American public. Because in the same speech, they should say, "Listen, I, I think it's unacceptable for these these businesses that want to be selling fruits and vegetables or whatever product they want to wait two years. So that they're, they're discouraged from doing it the right way. We have to speed up that process. And here's my plan to do it. At the same time. You, uh, I like the Trump approach that he came. It took him a year, but he finally figured out that if you took the aid away until they started living up to their security pledges, they're not getting it back. So they had the yeah. punitive way of doing it because no one was paying attention. Remember, Trump was it was not working, but at least he was trying to fix it. What bothers me most. Mary, is it doesn't seem like they're even alarmed by it. She's after 80 days, she goes to visit Guatemala. What about El Salvador? What about, uh, I mean, Honduras would be problematic. Uh, you know, Venezuela, we don't really have relations well, there. Yeah. But that's another no, huge issue. I agree issues. with you. I agree with you. I do think that the the real big problem, and, and this is very hard to see from this country, but the problem is that what I said in the beginning, not only is she not visiting El Salvador and Honduras and she's not paying attention to those countries, but also I think a key problem is that the U.S. Embassy in Guatemala and the U.S. State Department and U.S. Policy in general is very powerful. And, you know, if you go down there and start imposing a very left-wing agenda, which comes apart from some of these people on Capitol Hill, Democrats, who have a very socialist idea for the developing world, you cannot uh, basically square the idea that you're supporting that worldview and at the same time saying, I'm going to bring investment to this to this part of the world. You have to care. I mean, this this vice president met just last month with two with with four members of the opposition in Guatemala. I mean, people who uh, one of them, as I mentioned in my column, has two arrest warrants out for her. OK, she she and, and, and this is a president vice president who's saying that they're going to clean up corruption in Guatemala. They don't care about corruption if it's politically allied to their worldview. And this, and that, and th I think, and is this extremely officials, troubling. And you write in your column, go back to your country. If you're so innocent, go back to your country and fight for it. Instead, by meeting a, a accused corrupt politician who, who ran to our country for safety, 
when you meet with them, you're giving them credibility, and people back in Honduras, uh, excuse me, in Guatemala say, really, are you guys for real about truth and justice? Yeah, it's, I mean, the, uh, during the Obama administration, the uh, State Department, and I mentioned this um, nominee, Biden nominee for the, um, what they call the drugs and thugs portfolio at state, which is basically narcotics international law enforcement. And this guy was the ambassador in Guatemala during a time when this attorney general and, you know, CICIG, which I've written about this uh, UN commission, uh, was on the ground there and they did not prosecute a the high level people in a huge fraud um, yeah. uh, scam, and which had to do, by the way, with giving identity cards to people from, you know, the, the, from Russia, from China. And those identity cards are used to get passports, and then those are used to get U.S. Um, uh, uh, visas. So, you know, there's a complete lack of concern about going out and following the rule of law and strengthening the rule of law if the people that are doing the dirty work are politically on your side. Right. And, and Leslie, that is very dangerous. Uh, Mary, uh, one thing, I, it might not be in your purview, but I was struck by the number of nations coming across the border through Central uh, America and through Mexico, including Romanians. I mean, what's going on? I mean, is our, our whole is our legal immigration well, system so bad that people or people are just making a mockery of it? So anyone waiting in line feels as though they're being made a fool. Well, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote about the Darien Gap, which is a very dense jungle between Colombia and Panama, and uh, the Panamanian. Um, government had told me that they process a huge number of people coming through there. A lot of them are Africans. What I would say about all that goes back to your point initially, which is the idea that people from all these countries around the world would love to be in the United States. Of course. I mean, that's why my grandparents came here. You know, it's, it's a place where you can go from nothing to actually having something because of our rules. So that is obvious. And the job of the government is to basically manage the border in a way that you don't send a signal to people that the border's open. And obviously, if you say no more remain in Mexico policy, if you show up, you know, you can you can cross the border and we'll look for you later for your hearing. <laughs> and we know that those hearings are backed up. I mean, you know, you don't have to be I mean, thank you, Captain Obvious. You know, <laughs> you know, that's what's going to happen. Obviously, because right. it's a great opportunity. I don't really fault the people who are doing it, but the administration has to send the right message. And Mary, we cannot yeah. make, we cannot run an orderly migration policy at the southern border unless we send the right message to the world that if you do that, you're not getting in. And then give them the opportunity to apply legally gotcha. in their consulate. Mary, we'll talk next week to see what comes out of these meetings. Uh, Mary Anastasia O'Grady, Wall Street Journal. Thanks so much, Mary. Thanks, Brian. Back Have in a, a moment. Giving you everything you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. 
breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Um, I didn't get to see this fight, but I don't feel bad because nobody else did either. And it turns out Showtime, who paid a ton of money, and for, to, to Floyd Medweather and Logan Paul, a guy I didn't hear about, I guess a social media star that had two successful boxing debuts. So he challenged Floyd Mayweather. They had all these antics. So at Floyd Mayweather, this is an exhibition. He's, he retired undefeated. Uh, he's an unbelievably talented fighter, but very boring. He just wants to win fights, which I can understand, but he never put on a show. So now at 41 years old, he fights Logan Paul, giving away 36 pounds. Here's a little how it... Um, this is how it ended. Cut 41. I wanted to get the people on the show, and he was fighting to survive, as you guys can see. Um, every time he punched, he had clinch. Every time he had punched, he had clinch. He was the bigger guy, and um, a little awkward. His background is wrestling, if I'm not mistaken, so he was good at tying me up. So a guy that came in over 200 and some pounds, I came in at 155, but no excuse. I had fun tonight. And, um, you know, I go out there to put on a show. And I, and I really believe that he was, you know, just going a distance. That was a win for him. So he was happy with going a distance. And he was. I mean, he was surprising. Look, compare that to McGregor. McGregor got knocked out. So McGregor's more his size, though. I'm going to take your word for all of that. But, like, how many people really had streaming issues? A majority or a, a majority. lot? majority. And wow. guess what? They, I think the fighters were all guaranteed money. So he got $100 million. So Showtime's losing a lot of money. Uh, yes, but not Mayweather and not Logan Paul. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Brett Baer at the bottom of the hour bringing inside Washington. We need to go and get his insight. And then we're going to be joined by a CIA agent who maybe makes heads or tails about what we're actually doing and not doing in Afghanistan and around the globe. Is it true our intelligence agencies just went to the Wuhan Institute and asked how, uh, how this virus started and just looked at their own area but used uh, Chinese media really uh, – media – uh, relations people to decide uh, what the real pro- problem was with this pandemic. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's big three. Number three. I want kids to know about Tulsa. I also want them to know what that black community did to overcome that horrible massacre. I want them to see the forward progress of America as well on these issues. I don't want this to be my weaponization of my identity against yours. Uh, there you go. And that, of course, is Condoleezza Rice making sense. She grew up in a segregated South. Is not buying critical race theory. Her reasons why will get you thinking deeply. Number two. You know, I still have all the confidence in the world, Chris, we're going to get there. My goodness, the president has gone from $2.25 trillion down to $1 trillion. The Republicans have come up uh, quite a bit from where they started, but I, we're not there yet. I think they're going to be talking again tomorrow. That's what I hope. Joe Manchin, uh, the single force stopping Dems from nationalizing elections, jamming $2 trillion infrastructure down our throats and keeping the filibuster in play. Can he stand up to the sustained, intensifying left-wing pressure? I say yes, and I'll tell you why. 
Number one. I was told at that time, back in the spring, that Dr. Fauci had gone over to a meeting of world health leaders in Europe around the World Health Assembly and actually briefed them on the information that they were looking at, that this could have been a potential lab leak, that this strain looked unusual. So those discussions were going on. Yeah, they were. And that, of course, is Dr. Scott Gottlieb tapped into both this administration and the previous one. It matters. Origins of the China virus suddenly getting national interest because we have to stop the next one and wind out, find out if we could have stopped this one. So let's bring in our first guest today, Mark Polymeropoulos. Uh, he worked for 26 years with the CIA before retiring in July of 2019 as a senior intel level officer and author of a brand new book, Clarity in Crisis, uh, Leadership Lessons from the CIA. Mark, welcome back. Hey, thanks so much, Brian. Great to be here. All right, uh, Mark, first off, before we talk about your book, I'd like to talk about what I'm reading, the exit from Afghanistan. There's a lot of concern, I understand, the CIA about how we're getting out. You guys have a whole paramilitary unit outfit behind it. The, you have pledged, everyone pledged. The president said we're still going to be able to get intelligence from the region. I don't see it. Do you? Yeah, I, I think this is, this is really problematic. Um, you know, first and foremost, you know, we're, we're going to be given a task. And we're going to execute it the best we can. But make no mistake, this is not going to be easy because without U.S. boots on the ground, that means there's no U.S. intelligence officers on the ground. And when it comes to counterterrorism, you know, there's a triad of our counterterrorism capabilities. There's intelligence surveillance resources, you know, from overhead. You can still do that. Um, There's signals intelligence. You can still do that. But the human intelligence, the spies that 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 pinpoint targets, high value targets without CIA officers on the ground, uh, that's going to be tough. So now they're saying, well, you can go to Pakistan. Well, Pakistan says, if you're going to stay, we're gonna, you're going to have to uh, check in with us before you use your drones or take out a, a would-be target. They have to check off on it. And now if you stay in Afghanistan, now China is making inroads in Afghanistan with their railroad mining. And, China, and Russia's going to have a say. And, you know, Iran is still relevant there. And the Taliban isn't exactly, we're not exactly friendly with, nor do we endorse them. So why would we give up our base? Why would we give up a, a plot and a plan and a military base between Russia and China? So I, I think it's, I agree. I think it's a, a tremendous mistake. Um, I don't understand why a small, you know, residual force could not have been left. You know, we're not talking in the, in the you know, 30,000, 40,000 figure. We could talk, in, you know, 2,500 to, to maybe 5,000 um, U.S. forces that help protect intelligence officers who need to run these bases. Um, ultimately, we have no friends in the region other than the Afghan government. So, you know, the idea of relying on Pakistan, which, you know, many of us kind of consider that's, you know, the ally from hell, um, or even Central Asian states, which are going to have, you know, the Russians, you know, really provide a veto. I think we're going to find, you know, fewer friends in the region. Um, you know, other than our most reliable partner, which was the Afghan government, and now we're leaving. So now uh, I've got to pivot you over to, to China. Where, why was our intelligence so flat-footed when it comes to this pandemic and, and not very useful when it came to the origin of this pandemic? We're getting more information now from other sources than we are from our own intel agency who are now tasked with finding out the origins. But I heard that we went to the the... the the same scientists that were giving up some deceptive answers on this wet market as opposed to the Wuhan leak uh, theory? So, so the, the way I look at this, uh, you know, first and foremost is that, you know, this the, clearly, you know, you know, the, the, this, this industry or health or, or, or public health or a pandemic was never a collection priority for the intelligence community. So, you know, perhaps we were caught flat-footed at first because we did not task, you know, our signals intelligence or our human, uh, you know, assets to collect on this. 
I will say now, though, you know, and, and there is there is legitimate, you know, uh, controversy now over over what was done in the beginning. But I think now there certainly uh, has been a pivot. And one thing that I think that we should at least be thankful for is that, you know, uh, that that we are open minded. You know, the, the intelligence picture at, at is, is, is never static. It's dynamic. So the idea that we are rethinking um, the, the theory that it was that that it was, you know, originated in, in the lab um, and may have escaped. I mean, that's a good thing. You know, we have to be open-minded. We have to, you know, collect new streams of intelligence. Perhaps we'll have, um, you know, new walk-ins, you know, volunteers uh, with this type of information. But it doesn't surprise me that at the beginning, you know, the pandemic uh, was, you know, was, was just wasn't a collection priority. And, uh, and so that means we don't have sources uh, to report on it. Uh, Fast-forwarding over to Russia, where the president will be meeting in a week. Uh, when you look at what they've done and they say they got these cyber un- these hackers in their country hacking our industries, whether it's oil and gas or, or meat production. Now we hear ferry services in Narragansett. We know it's not going to stop and it could get worse. What responsibility does the government have? How much capability do we have to get on the offense with this cybersecurity? Right. I think I, I think we have to do what what you've heard, you know, uh, you know, multiple NSA directors do is, is defend forward. I mean, we have to you know, you, you have to take an offensive strategy on this. Um, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, Russia is responsible for these cyber attacks, whether it's a private sector company working in, in Russia or not. I mean, that reminds me you know, of, of the argument, you know, after 9-11, you know, Al Qaeda conducted the attacks on 9-11. Uh, but we held the Taliban responsible for hosting uh, Al Qaeda. And I think you can make that same argument. Uh, but make no mistake, we have to defend forward. We have to be offensive in our in our, in our capabilities, and then of course we also have to uh, increase our defensive capacity as well. Because the fact of the matter is, you know, U.S. infrastructure is very vulnerable and continues to be so. Yeah, and we and they pay the ransom. Private industry has to work, uh, uh, has to work with our government in respect. I don't understand why this is so hard. We watched to have to everybody had to change and go by these new regulations when it came to the pandemic, whether they were a small restaurant or a big uh, or a gym. You find out what are the new rules? Well, now, if I want to actually own a pipeline, these are the cybersecurity thresholds you've got to subscribe to. If I want to if I want to run my electric, if I want to run uh, power through a region, these are the right. things I have to do to secure the power supply. Why is that so hard? Right, Brian, you're right, and I, I think when forensically we go through and see what happened, it's almost embarrassing because we're making it far too easy for our adversaries. Uh, uh, you know, and and you know whether it's whether it's you know uh, people putting in passwords that are easy to break, um, or or just you know uh, certain industries that are not really adhering to to what would be uh, you know uh, standard norms. Um, you know, we bear some fault in this, in that we you know we have to do better defensively. And I think that you know this has been a real wake up call over the last several weeks. Uh, that this is uh, this is uh, this is absolutely critical. Um, you have to remember that that you know Russia has conducted cyber attacks that that you know, against Ukraine that took down you know the power grids there. I mean, so you know, so what are we seeing right now? It's just this just the beginning uh, of of a future kind of hybrid warfare where the U.S. is really vulnerable. Yeah, but we also are capable of getting the offense, and I think the American people would support getting on the offense. Mark Polymeropoulos is with us now. His new book is out. It's called Clarity and Crisis Leadership Lessons from the CIA. So you're in the CIA uh, for uh, how many years? I was in the CIA for, for 26 years um, as an as a, you know, operations officer and then manager. Most of the time I spent in the, in the Middle East. Um, and in the latter stages of my career, I was uh, the operations chief overseeing, you know, what we call Europe and Eurasia, which is everything from, you know, Ireland all the way to the farthest reaches of the, you know, Russian time zones. 
So what did you try to do with taking your expertise in the CIA and grounding it to help other people and, and other companies? Sure. So, so this was this was actually a, a great passion of mine. You know, leadership was you know, particularly at the end of my career when I finally figured out you know how to do it right. But ultimately, what I, what I found there, there was there was principles that I used which would ultimately allow someone to kind of be happy operating. You know, what we call in the gray. You know, when you have a lack of situational awareness. Um, you know, when when others want to flee. Uh, and so you kind of embrace that. And so you know, you're you're the one who said you know said send me when when times are really tough and and making decisions under those circumstances became easy for me when I adopted certain principles. And there's just there's nine fundamentals I talk about in the book that I think are really applicable to, to all walks of life because, you know, you want that, you want to be in your happy place uh, in the gray. You know, you don't want to be the one running from the fire. You want to be the one, you know, saying, okay, I got this, you know, and, and, I, and, and I'll tell you, you take a look at so many things, even, even the COVID pandemic, um, you know, institutions or companies that, that were able to, to weather this, were those that really understood, uh, uh, you know, how to, how to operate when times are tough and times of great ambiguity. Yeah, so you, you boil it down to four that stand out, uh, maybe perhaps more than others. Righteous, uh, legal, ethical, and moral. Difficult, not an everyday chore, and out of their comfort zone. Selfless, don't right. ask others to do what you would, you would not. And communicable, easy to explain, accept positive and negative feedback. So that's, that's what right. that's you right. were able to process. You were able to put them forward. Would this be written down or so be your personal guidelines? No. So, it's, so, you know, I have nine principles and, you know, in the book. And then after each chapter, after each principle, you know, I, I discuss ways in which this can be applied. I call it the mad minute. You know, this is basically in CIA speak in an operational meeting when you're meeting an agent. You have about 60 seconds to go over kind of the critical key themes. So that's what I called it here. And so, so for example, one of my, one of my principles, I called the glue guy or the glue guy gal. That was an indispensable member of your team, probably behind the scenes, you know, not the door kicker, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a Navy SEAL team or not a CIA case officer, but someone behind the scenes um, who was indispensable and you foster that person. And so in the mad minute, in the checklist, I, I, I will tell, you know, a client or, or you, know, to, to, I, you know, ask someone in the private sector, who is that indispensable person? And you have to embrace them. You have to promote them. Um, because at the end of the day, when times are really tough, you're going to rely on those people. Uh, just as much as uh, kind of your all-stars. Well, very interesting. And, and lastly, you talk about a performance-enhancing drug. What do you mean? <laughs> I say adversity is the performance-enhancing drug to success. That's one of my principles. And, and so, so basically, you know, as a CIA officer, I, I, I failed a lot, and I learned a lot about humility. But, but you have to go through adversity in order to ultimately succeed. You know, I always make the, the analogy to, you know, to, you know, Michael Jordan got cut from his high school basketball team. And, you know, look, look where he went after that. So you have to learn what it feels like to fail in order to then um, succeed when times are tough. And, uh, you know, there's so many examples of this, you know, in, in the sports world and, you know, in military special operations and the intelligence world. Um, but it's something that I think people will really relate to because, you know, life is hard and we fail. It's how you learn from this failure. Um, that's, that's ultimately going to get you to, 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 to succeed when times are, uh, times are real tough. And lastly, Mark, do you appreciate the country more or, or, or do you have a more, a more uh, discerning view now that you work so, for, so long outside our borders? Oh, my goodness. Um, look, I'm the kind of person when I would, I would, you know, I was in the Middle East one time, at a, I can't say where, but a, a country where, you know, it was a high counterintelligence threat. We weren't friends. And I remember walking towards the U.S. Embassy and I saw the American flag just the silhouette of that. And that to me is incre- was incredibly motivating. I'll never, I'll never 
forget that. I, I look at my kids, you know, both of them who grew up in the Middle East, and they, they see America in a really different light as a land of incredible opportunity with, you know, freedoms that others don't enjoy. And so, you know, certainly, you know, the, the last year has been a, a tough for, for the United States. But, you know, I still believe, you know, I, I'm still one who believes that America is the you know, bright, shining, you know, city on the hill. Um, and I, I think when, when, you, when you live and you experience some of the things that I've, I have, you know, whether it's just in the Middle East or in the war zones of Iraq or Afghanistan, you really appreciate America um, for what it is. Absolutely. Uh, so congratulations on the book, uh, Mark. I appreciate you coming on. Hopefully we'll talk to you again. We need your expertise. Clarity in Crisis Leadership Lessons from the CIA. Mark, thank you. Thanks, Brian. Have a great day. Thank you. You got it. one 408 7669. We'll take your calls next, but also welcome in Brett Bear at the bottom of the hour and find out at the end of the hour if there's indeed more to know. Getting past all the rhetoric, it's Brian Kilmeade. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I was born in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, I was eight before my family could go to a movie theater or to a restaurant. I didn't have a white classmate until we moved to Denver when I was 12. So, yes, I know America's uh, troubled past. And that troubled past continues to have an impact uh, going forward on how we see each other. When I hear the talk about structural racism, it really gives me pause. And it gives me pause because it doesn't tell me what to do. Right. It, it's a dead stop. Structural racism. Good. Let's have protests in the street. Let's get uh, white people to say they're privileged. Uh, let's black people to say they're underserved. And they can't be successful. Let's make them uh, demand reparations. And there we go. And we say to ourselves, what kind of progress have we made since 1776 and 1860 and 1960 and 1990? Have we made any? Condoleezza Rice, a living example, former secretary of state, well, an eight-year-old couldn't go to a movie. She goes on, on Face the Nation yesterday, cut 26. Can we finally agree that our uh, K-12 education system is really serving poor kids and, and minority kids uh, very badly? Can we agree that uh, we actually have a choice system? Because if uh, you uh, are of means, you will move to a district where the schools are good. You will go, uh, and by the way, the houses will be expensive. So that's a choice. You can send your kids to private schools. So those are choices. So who really doesn't have choice? Poor kids. But if these school choice and the voucher programs are approved, these kids will be able to take their money, whether it's 12000 or 22000 a year, that's basically earmarked for them that goes in the public school system, and take it on the road. My school is failing, even though my friends are there. My parents are taking me out to a private school. That perhaps there's a dress code, there's longer hours, more demands, but I want my kid to have... A better curriculum, a better shot, more disciplined, uh, more um, ambitious friends. And then that pressure on the public school system will make them better. It'll it'll be a win all around. But that is a productive conversation. Having kids apologize for being white is not a good conversation. I don't care if you're a minority or if you're a white person. That's not productive. She goes on. Cut 27. I want kids to know about Tulsa. I also want them to know what that black community did to overcome 
that horrible massacre. I want them to know about 63 in Birmingham, but I want them to know that the mayor of Birmingham today is a black man who grew up in a poor community. So I want them to see the forward progress of America as well on these issues. And I want us as a country to do it together because uh, I don't want this to be black against white, my weaponization of my identity against yours. So if you just get people involved and you don't listen to the Al Sharpton divisive nature, I make more money when things are uh, violent. If you just want to solve problems, there's a lot of people, most people want to solve the problem. Yeah, I see the inequity. Let's fix it rather than let's blame. Let's wreck everything else that we don't have. Any success I have, it's got to be law enforcement's fault or the country's fault. When we come back, I'll bring some up this, uh, some of this up with Brett Baer and more. Brian Kilmey. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. You know, I still have all the confidence in the world, Chris, we're going to get there. My goodness, the president has gone from $2.25 trillion down to $1 trillion dollars. The Republicans have come up uh, quite a bit from where they started. This is the same type of uh, challenges we had back last year when we had to all get together and break a deadlock. But we're not there yet. I think they're going to be talking again tomorrow. We'll wait. We'll talk to Senator Capito after those meetings. We'll talk to the White House. And we think we can find a pathway forward. We're not that far apart. Well, we'll see. Is that the story? Because I believe that Joe Manchin really believes that. And I think the numbers seem comparable but a lot of people dive into that and say they're still far apart. Don't be fooled. Brett Baer, not easily fooled, chief political anchor of Fox News. Anchor Special Report starts at 6 tonight uh, and author of Three Days on the Brink. That's his latest. Brett, welcome back. What do you think about Joe Manchin's optimism? Well, I think, Brian, it's it's uh, telling. I think that uh, he kind of has a, a finger on where the negotiations are. There are about – Six Democrats um, who fall into that that kind of bucket where they're really negotiating, and um, I think the president is is kind of dialing back. Uh, I don't think his staff particularly wants him to, but he's uh, at least in conversation said that they are open to you know coming down to uh, a number that's uh, more in line with Republicans. I do think uh, there's more optimism now than there has been. How much pressure on the left? I see Jonathan Swan's column on Axios saying that there's a lot of pressure on the left for the for the president just to to jam this whole thing through and forget about negotiating at all. And uh, they're beginning to get restless with the constant talks. I don't think they understand the math because it might not just be Joe Manchin. There might be other senators they don't have. How much pressure is on on the president's left? Yeah, I, I mean, it is math. That's all it comes down to. I mean, if Manchin says we need Republican buy-in, um, he claims that the uh, first time in the COVID relief package, uh, he did what he did, uh, voting for it because as a personal favor to um, President Biden, but told him at the time that this was a one-time deal and we need that bipartisanship on these big pieces of legislation. If you buy that, then uh, it's not just Manchin, but you've got Cinema. You've got probably four or five others who would have a problem with the jam-through option. Uh, so it's just not feasible 
And that in itself relieves a little pressure, I think, on the administration and thereby makes Joe Biden negotiate. And Joe Manchin, the bad guy, even though he's probably sticking up for Senator John Tester, too, who's not taking the, the taking the fire that he is. Right. No, I mean, it's it's not just Tester. I mean, you've got Mark Warner from Virginia. You've got Maggie Hassan from New, New Hampshire. Um, we always mention Christian Cinema, but there's Mark Kelly, who's up for reelection. All these people are under the Manchin umbrella, and he is taking the fire you know, uh, and the the wrath of the progressives. And he really doesn't care. In West Virginia, that doesn't really matter. Um, what are they going to do? Run a, a primary on Joe Manchin um, from the left in West Virginia? Good luck with that. Yeah, I know. I, I think the Republicans should be happy he's there. And uh, West Virginia, uh, Democrats should be happy they have anyone from West Virginia, being that President Trump got 64 percent of the vote the last time. What I also thought was interesting is the other major piece of legislation that Senator Schumer wanted to put forward, and that is the uh, voting legislation. So he is not for that. He wrote an editorial basically putting his flag there, saying, I'm not going to be voting for that. So uh, what do you think the significance of that is? Because that's something, of course, I don't want it. It would nationalize elections. It would make you don't need voter ID. Just take a sworn affidavit. You are who you are. Automatic registration around the country and, you know, uh, mail-in ballot, all the stuff they would do with you could fit in 900 pages are in this. He is not doing it. Yeah, it's really significant. I mean, you've had a number of Democrats like Senator Klobuchar, who's really pushing it, uh, put out statements kind of exasperated. But but they're, you know, moving forward. I think that, uh, again, it comes down to math. Set aside that the piece of legislation you're talking about could be challenged in the court because the Constitution really does spell out that elections will be run by each state um, and the state legislature. So it's pretty clear in the Constitution and in a court that's structured the way I'm talking the Supreme Court, it is tough to see how that law holds up. But um, put that aside, you still don't have the numbers if Manchin's out. So the uh, obviously the squad and others and uh, commentators say that Joe Manchin shouldn't run my party. Jamie Harrison trying to be a little bit more diplomatic. He ran for the Senate seat in South Carolina. He's now DNC chair. Here's what he said about Manchin's stance. Cut 23. Well, listen, I'm very disappointed in Senator Manchin's decision. And obviously I disagree because, listen, I know he wants to protect democracy, but there will be no democracy if we don't protect the right rights to votes of all Americans. Listen, I'm not going to demonize Joe Manchin because I actually have a lot of respect for the center. Um, and, and I understand that he's trying to do the right thing. But all I'm saying is it's important to listen to perspectives here. It's also important to understand how personal this is. And time matters. They're about to lose the House, barring something unusual, and they got to fight to keep the Senate. So they think that they really got a year and a half in control of Washington. I agree with you, and uh, I think they're in better position in the Senate just by who's defending what um, than they are in the House. I, and it should be paint by numbers for Republicans if they don't, you know, step in it between here and um, November 2022. But um, and that's it's possible that they do. the The issue, I think, there's a large part of the party that says 
let's let's roll with this. And I think you're starting to see the formation of these moderates uh, standing up. And it's just that Manchin gets all the attention. But as we mentioned, there are others who are in that boat. A couple of things. Afghanistan, you read the story today in the New York Times. We're getting out so quick, it's falling apart so quick. The CIA doesn't even know where they're going to base to be able to get keep their paramilitary unit relevant, be able to hit drones. We can't go to Pakistan. If we are, it's going to be so limited. You wonder why we're there. Why would we ever give up the, the base in Kabul? Makes no sense to me between China and Russia. We're going to base everything from an aircraft carrier. And everybody else, all our enemies, going to have influence. Brett, why aren't people paying attention to the idiocy of this move? Well, I think that there's um, more and more, you know, lawmakers who are speaking out about it, but they're the traditional backers of uh, military strength, and that's you know the Mike Waltzes and Liz Cheney's and and others. Um, the problem with the politics of all of this is that Donald Trump, as president, wanted this as well. Uh, was a big proponent of it. Uh, so when Joe Biden does it, there is, uh, in essence, bipartisan cover uh, to do exactly what they're doing. And, um, you know, and politically, there are a lot of people that say it's time to come home. But you're right. Strategically, uh, that's an important place uh, for U.S. troops to be. So uh, yesterday, I don't know if you've noticed, but there was uh, no mention of D-Day by the president of the United States for a guy who wrote a book about it. About those days, three days on the brink, FDR's daring gamble to win World War II. How do you feel about that? Well, listen, I thought it was surprising. I thought it was a big whiff. I don't understand how that happens. Um, there were a lot of social media posts. I, mean, I posted one and I retweeted some others. But, I mean, it was very prevalent uh, yesterday. And people like Britt Hume reflecting on covering the 50th anniversary of D-Day and and others, you know, looking back to the big ceremony um, just, a, just a couple of years ago, I, I think it was a real whiff. And not only that, but the press secretary was on, was on um, and live answering questions, and there was plenty of opportunity to say something on behalf of the White House. Uh, so it's kind of surprising. And, you know, listen, the, there are people who look at this and, and read a lot into it. Um, but there are mistakes that that are easy to do, like Memorial Day when the vice president starts off saying, you know, have a great long weekend and gets bombarded. Uh, it's just kind of low-hanging fruit that any White House should be able to handle. The other thing that bothers you is that the UFO pictures aren't clearer. Uh, uh, I watched you at the end. You blew off your, uh, you blew off your normal winners segment. Winners and losers. Winners yeah. and losers. And I know because, what's bothering but, you about this? First of all, the fact that we have a government report that says it's not our technology, but we cannot say that it's not aliens, and everybody kind of shrugs their shoulders. Now, if there's – literally, if it's aliens, are people not acting like, oh, there's aliens flying around, no big deal? And we have all this technology, satellites, cameras – you know, on planes that that are high tech, and we can't have one decent picture or satellite image of of one of these things. Somebody knows something, and it's just frustrating. 
and I don't, I don't know. Did I it affect your weekend or just your Friday show? <laughs> I let it go. I let it go. I, you did. You know, I, I decided to have that segment and then just uh, let it go. All right. Well, that, I respect that. Uh, let's talk <laughs> about what happened in golf. Somebody just gave John some news. This is not good. And we have no idea, folks. We have no idea. We just passed along some information, and you could see just instant devastation. John Rahm, what did he get? What did, you, what did he hear? A positive COVID test, uh, PCR test, and uh, had to withdraw according to the, law, the uh, rules of the PGA. And um, he had a six-shot lead in the Memorial after Saturday. And that's, like, that's just heinous. That's horrific. If masks work, why not stick him in a mask and just let him play by himself? Have this, the caddy sign a uh, release form. You know, I, I just feel horrible for him. He sent out a great message that was really, really um, – you know, a high brow and uh, took it all in stride. But, you know, you're talking a million plus dollars um, and amazing play that uh, didn't get rewarded. Again, and we don't, he felt fine. So he was clearly asymptomatic. So he said that I, he didn't have the vaccine or the second shot. So they said, we have to test you every day. He said, all right, test me every day. And he gets cold in the middle of the, in the middle of the uh, round. That's it. Yeah, so it was actually the end of his third round. So heading into the final day, uh, he has a six-shot lead. They're getting ready to sign off on CBS, and they're saying Look, this is a big day for John Rahm. And then they see the the thing, which also was kind of weird that it was on camera right on the side of the green. I think they could have taken him to a room or something. But um, anyway – I think it's just horrible for, for him and for the whole thing, but those are the rules, the rules are the rules. All right, I'm sure all those people around Phil Mickelson all tested negative for the coronavirus when he was winning the Masters, right? I mean, this the is... The PGA. Uh, the PGA. I mean, you got to be kidding. Yeah. Well, I mean... I mean, I, I don't know. I, I suppose they did, but who who knows? Well, the, the thing is, is that... Um, Whatever. He didn't have the second shot. He didn't get the vaccine or his, you know, and then he gets tested. I, I just think that there's got to be a, a better way. But uh, they set that up strictly at the beginning of the, the uh, to deal with COVID. Brett Baer, uh, we've covered it all, right? Your, the, your, passion, so. your passion for history, your passion for golf, and your passion for news. You really could take yep. the rest of the day off and feel fulfilled. Yeah, I mean, if you had John Rahm talking D-Day on an alien spacecraft, I think we could put it all together. That's right. And if I really had good producers, Allison, you totally let me down. Uh, we, would, <laughs> we would have done that. But I'm going to reprimand them after the segment. I apologize. <laughs> hey, Brett, good we'll luck see. tonight. All right, bye. You got it. one 408 7669 We find out if there's more to know next. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. The more I think about it, I really believe that there might, in fact, be time to know more. 
More to Know. Sponsored by Oxford Gold Group. Call today to learn how you can protect your retirement and savings account. 833-600-GOLD. That's 833-600-GOLD. All right, here you go. Logan Paul, the reality star of the social media phenom, took on Floyd Mayweather, the 41-year-old, maybe one of the greatest pound-for-pound boxers ever, long retired, now fighting an exhibition just to make $100 million. I think I would do the same thing. Would he beat a man so much younger, so much bigger, 36 pounds he was giving away? Let's listen. But Floyd Mayweather would actually... Uh, they wouldn't really count the fight, but ESPN scored a 78-74 for more Mayweather with 43 total punches to uh, Paul's 28 of the 43 punches for Mayweather. 36 were power shots. Paul landed 21 power shots. Mayweather 17. Uh, CBS scored about 79-73 for Mayweather, but it was all an exhibition. He's it's a, It was basically just to get a lot of viewers and do something on a Saturday night. Bad news for Showtime. A lot of people did not get it because they had streaming issues. If you purchased tonight's pay-per-view event, Showtime put up on the board um, and could not stream, please go to Showtime.com, help for information to request a refund. That might have killed him because the fighters' purses were guaranteed. Here's what Logan Paul said after surviving eight rounds. Cut 42. I don't want anyone to tell me anything is impossible ever again. The fact that I'm in here with one of the greatest boxers of all time proves that the odds can be beat. I'm the Maverick. I go right when they go left. I'm the unorthodox one. I'm the independent one. And everyone has it in them. And everyone can beat the odds and do great things in life. And I want everyone to know that. That's the message I'm here to say. Floyd Mayweather, it was an honor. I hate being a kid. I love you guys. I love all you guys. This is one of the greatest moments of my life. All right. He's pretty happy. I mean, he should be, right? He was in there, but he also got a lot of money. And he was still talking after the fight. So that's yeah, I mean, he's so much bigger, though, too. Uh, Conor McGregor, about the same size. Never boxed before. Uh, really, I think I lasted five rounds. Next. Uh, we already talked about that. Let's talk about this. The White House press briefing room will look different. No masks and 100% sold out. That'll be good. I think the country needs to see the James Brady briefing room full of people. I agree. And more questions for Jen Psaki. All right, next, California County cuts the COVID-19 death toll by 25%, down from 1,634 to 1,223. Uh, the county, uh, this county uh, in California, uh, said that the deaths were not a direct result of the virus. County officials decided to revise the numbers to align more with the California Department of Health. The county previously included deaths of anyone infected with the virus, regardless of whether it was direct or just contributing to death. I wonder how the numbers will change if they do that throughout the country and not just in California. Next, Facebook's executive defense a two-year ban on Trump. Let's listen to Nick Clegg. Cut 37. We've got very clear rules. They're called community standards. Everyone can go online to see them. And one of the brightest of those red lines, as you just implied, is that you cannot... It doesn't matter who you are. You can be the Pope, the Queen of England, the President of the United States. You cannot use uh, our services, and I hope most people would think this is reasonable, to aid, abet, foment, or praise acts of violence. Okay, but you keep the Ayatollah Khomeini up there. The, everybody in Venezuela can tweet. You have a heck of a standard to live up to. And as a lot of people don't believe the president did tell anyone to commit violence, his speech said go, to the, said, go march peacefully, but they never really talked about that. And by doing that, they also removed any way that Trump can really fundraise effectively. That's going to hurt him. Definitely going to hurt him.
I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.